Welcome to Gravity, a podcast on the environment and human rights issues from the local to the global. Over one million refugees, mostly from Afghanistan, Iraq and Syria, have passed through Serbia since 2015 to seek asylum in Western and Northern Europe and thousands remain due to entry restrictions and border closures, particularly in Hungary and Croatia, preventing the journey onward. While the closure of borders has decreased arrivals, people continue to arrive and generally spend around nine months in Serbia while they wait to continue their journey, whether by being fortunate enough to be the few allowed legal passage onward, taking the risk and paying to be smuggled over the border, or losing hope and opting to return home. Serbia's own dwindling economic prospects and its somewhat insular culture, as well as its long asylum process, have resulted in few asylum applications and less than 50 successful cases from 2008. Serbia has far less refugees than Italy and Greece, and yet it's instructive to look at what's happening on the ground there, for Serbia has had a recent history of both resettling refugees and producing refugees from the seismic conflict of the breakup of the Socialist Federal Republic of Yugoslavia and its aftershocks. Serbia resettled hundreds of thousands of refugees from Croatia, Bosnia and Kosovo and produced a vast Serbian diaspora across the world, which continues to expand due to an uncertain economic climate where nearly 20% of the population continue to be unemployed. I recently spoke with Felix Thompson, coordinator of Refugee Aid Serbia, about its work and the situation on the ground in Serbia with respect to the refugees that remain in the country and that are continuing to arrive. Hi Felix, welcome to Gravity. Thank you very much. So since May 2015, Serbia and other countries in the Western Balkans have been facing an unprecedented refugee crisis. Over one million people have passed through Serbia, and according to the United Nations Commissioner for Human Rights, nearly 6,000 remain after Hungary and Croatia severely restricted entry to their borders, sometimes through very violent means, and in Hungary's case, the building of a barbed wire fence. May you please elaborate more on the situation currently on the ground in Serbia? Yeah, so although it fluctuates and it's difficult to get accurate numbers, uh, obviously because the entries and the exits are by and large illegal, um, the numbers are between eight and 9,000 migrants and asylum seekers uh, who, who are in the territory of Serbia. Um, it's estimated that probably around 300 people are arriving a week. Uh, the two main entry points are through Macedonia and Bulgaria. Um, it's worth noting that uh, I think it's about 87% of, of uh, the refugees who we have in Serbia come from Syria, Afghanistan or Iraq. So that gives you an idea of the, of the, of the demographics which are coming here. So by and large, people are coming from Turkey through uh, you know, the Balkan corridor. And then they end up in Serbia, uh, at which point um, it gets uh, tricky, as you mentioned. The two exit points that they're trying to get to from here are usually uh, Hungary and Croatia, both of which have closed their borders, both of which are fortified. The only legal means of continuing your journey are through Hungary. Uh, they accept uh, five people a day uh, who have to register themselves on the list and then they're allowed through into the country, then they can apply for asylum. But apart from that, you have no legal means of continuing your journey from here. So uh, indeed, as you say, it's unprecedented numbers trying to come through, but uh, you know they get here and um, this, I would say, is one of the final frontiers they have into Western Europe. And we're seeing uh, by and large people, people getting stuck and not being able to continue their journey. So the list seems quite small. How do they formulate the list? It's a very odd system. It's not controlled by either the Serbian government or the Hungarian government. Uh, it's facilitated by the authorities, but it's run 
by community representatives from the refugee community. Um, and the idea is that you can register yourself onto the list from any of the government camps in Serbia. And you could say, right, I'd like to get through into Hungary. And so you put yourself onto a list. And um, probably about a year ago, when the list was at its height, uh, they were letting through 30 people a day uh, through two transit zones. So you literally leave Serbia. You go into a kind of no man's land, no man's territory between the two countries. Um, and then you wait there. And then your name would get called and you're pass through the fence and you can go into Hungary. Um, but uh, there's all sorts of problems with it to the extent that because the regulation is uh, very opaque, um, you know, there's problems around corruption, uh, around bribery. Uh, you find that a lot of families will know that their name is on the list and they'll get called from the camp and they say, right, you're going in two or three days. Come on through, come up to the transit zone. They'll get there. They'll get to the border and someone will say, oh, no, you've already been through. You know, your name's already been called because there's a lot of oh. buying of names or swapping of names. So it's it's a very difficult system and quite, uh, yeah, very, very precarious. And is there a process to change this to make it more equitable so that, for instance, families go through and, and it's not based on who can pay people to get on a list? Yeah, it's, the point about families is interesting. So last year when it was at this 30, which is, I think, the height of, of the most people that were going through, of the 30, 28 were members of a family, not a single family, obviously, but it was 28 family members and then only two single men. And so that was divided between the two transit zones. One unofficially was for Arabic speakers and one unofficially was kind of for everyone else. Um, and so, yeah, 15 people from one, 15 people from the other, 14 uh, of which would be family members. So only two single men were getting through. Now it's been dropped down to five and it's kind of whoever can get through. And in terms of efforts to, to modify or, or edit that system, uh, I think the trajectory is that the list, which has been uh, decreasing in terms of how many people are being allowed through, is, is more likely to be completely stopped uh, before I would say it's uh, improved in a systematic way. So the passage is being limited, but 300 people a week are still coming into Serbia hoping to move forward. Yeah, indeed. But I mean, those numbers are already lower than they were, uh, again, compared to, you know, August 2015, obviously, before the borders had closed, uh, and they did in March 2016. Before the closure of the borders, it, you, you had tens of thousands of people transiting the country on a continuous basis. It doesn't seem like anybody really wants to stay in Serbia for a number of reasons, but they've only, since 2008, Serbia's only accepted 49 asylum seekers. Yeah, Serbia is a very unique situation and their asylum process was really quite bad and quite uh, unstructured and, and and so I think they've been hit as of all European countries um, by the wave and, and by the numbers but I think they weren't really expecting how many people were coming through and they haven't been equipped to deal with the asylum processes but but yeah I mean I think the most important thing as you say is that this is not a destination country. Um, what's uh, difficult about that is that the kind of transit mentality still remains with the refugees we work with. They're very much convinced that this is a stop-off point um, from which they can continue their journey. But the reality on the ground is that the average waiting time uh, that a family will spend in Serbia before they move on is now between nine and 12 months. So, you know, transit is a debatable term uh, because people are getting stuck. And uh, as I say, that their, their means for continuing their journey are really, uh, really few and far between. 
How is the government handling these numbers and how have they changed in terms of what they were doing in 2015 to now when they realise that people will be there for quite a long time? I suppose the the biggest way that they've changed since people have been getting stuck is, I suppose, things around accommodation. Um, Because, you know, realising that when people were transiting the country, no one had to stop for very long. And so you only needed to house hundreds, maybe a couple of of very few thousands. Now, as I think I said, it's it's around eight, between eight and nine thousand, excuse me. So um, they have to make sure they have place for everyone. So I, I suppose the main thing they've been doing is improving, modifying and building new facilities. Um, And uh, what's interesting about it is that obviously Serbia has a very recent history of being a a refugee producing and receiving nation. Uh, And so only 20 years ago, they had a war, which which meant that uh, they had to open up facilities to house refugees, some of which were still open when the crisis started here in 2014 or 15, and were still housing refugees from uh, the the war of Yugoslavia. So they had some very, as you can imagine, quite basic, sparse accommodation for people. And so the main thing that they've done, I suppose, in the past two years is, and with the help of the European Union and the European Commission, spend quite hefty, quite substantive amounts of money making those facilities better. Um, And so the camps are, you know, they they have by and large enough space for everyone. There's now enough food. With the help of NGOs and other groups, they're getting enough uh, clothes and hygiene items to people. So I, I think people's basic needs, the government has probably just about now managed to, to meet. Uh, what I think is interesting, and I think the biggest challenge for the government now, is accepting that people's needs change as they stay here for a longer time. And that there are, I think it's fair to say, and I think the government would admit this of their own volition, they're a bit behind on on working on educational, recreational, psychosocial activities uh, to recognise the fact that, you know, people are here with nothing to do. A lot of them have uh, trauma, depression, or are quite simply out of activities. They're not, they're not being productive. They're not being entertained. So I think that's, that's the next thing that this, the government is, is turning its eye to. And I think uh, somewhere they have a lot of work. Right. And I think maybe part of the problem is that everybody thinks it's just a waiting of passage. When you talked about the previous refugee situation, those people were being resettled and everybody knew that they were going to be resettled. Hundreds and thousands of people that were resettled from Kosovo, from Bosnia, from Croatia. But here, both the government and the the refugee community have the mindset of impermanence. And I think that's part of the problem. But I would like to now discuss how your organization was formed, Refugee Aid Serbia, and your main activities. Yeah, yeah. So we're a very small organization. Uh, We are primarily volunteer-led. We've got an incredible core of volunteers on an ongoing basis who come and and help us with our operations. But uh, we started in August 2015 uh, as uh, kind of a grouping of primarily local citizens who just saw what was happening on their doorstep and thought, this is, uh, I need to do something. Uh, and so it was uh, local businesses and community organizations, uh, a couple of education groups who uh, who got together and really just looked at what was happening here in the city center. So we're based in Belgrade in the capital. And uh, just next to the main bus station and train station, there's two parks. And um, even when people were transiting, you know, they had to stop for one day or two days. And then obviously when the borders closed, they had to stop m- more long term. And so people were sleeping rough. Uh, the numbers were between one and 2,000, probably at any one time, sleeping in 
very small parks or in the streets, indeed, you know, really wherever they could be in quite a concentrated area. So we as an organization uh, set up really to, to, to meet their most basic needs and to distribute humanitarian aid. So uh, we started uh, with food distribution and non-food item distribution. So shoes, clothes, backpacks, blankets, that kind of thing. And uh, so we started in the city center, started doing it in Belgrade. Then we moved out to other areas of, uh, across the country. So both on the northern border with Hungary, where people were stranded or indeed being pushed back. Uh, and then also on the southern border for the, for the first arrivals, people coming from Bulgaria. So uh, for, for a long time, the, the focus of our organization has been humanitarian aid distribution. And then, as you can probably tell what my priorities are, uh, and as an organization, we thought we should move into activities that reflect the fact that people are staying. So we thought, okay, well, education is one of the biggest things that needs to happen next. So we opened up an education center where we are teaching people I mean, both educational and recreational activities. So English language lessons, we're doing maths, we're doing science, we're doing cultural integration classes, we're starting to do some IT literacy things. So really just making sure that they can use the time that they have here and that uh, it's it's productive for them. Uh, and then the last thing that we do, uh, the third part of our organization is uh, community integration uh, events or community interaction events. So really just getting locals and refugees who are in Serbia together uh, through, we, we do day-long festivals, we do workshops, we do film evenings, anything really that we can get people around the table and um, getting to know one another and breaking down barriers and uh, and uh, facilitating those kind of first steps maybe of integration. So so that's what we do really as an organisation. So tell me a little bit more about the, the Routes Festival last October in Belgrade. That kind of fitted into this community integration part of what we do. And uh, yeah, it stems from, I mean, as I explained, it's, it's a, it was a lot of people sleeping rough in a really small part of town. And so uh, the relationship with the locals was uh, tense or, or non-existent, uh, but it certainly wasn't positive. So we thought, okay, well, why don't we try and get everyone, uh, you know, in the same space and uh, facilitate them to, to talk, really, and to get to know one another and to share some of their experiences and just to meet. And also to meet in a setting that's not, you know, crossing in the road and uh, occupying the same space and, 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 and in a bit of a hostile environment. So so we did a day-long festival, our, our first uh, Roots Festival, and uh, it was, I, I think it was a, yeah, it was a success to the extent that we had about 400 refugees come and about 250 locals come throughout the day. And we had, uh, so, Serbian uh, dancing called Kolo dancing, um, and we taught that to the refugees, and then in turn they taught some uh, traditional Afghan dancing. Uh, we did cooking workshops, again, of Serbian food, of Afghan food, of Iraqi food. Uh, we had uh, panel discussions. So really interestingly, people uh, from Serbia stood up and spoke about their experience from the war and some of them who identified as refugees or as displaced people. And then on the same panel, we had you know what I'd call contemporary refugees from Afghanistan and Syria talk about their experience. Um, and then we just had music workshops and conversation corners, a human library. So it was really to, to get people around the table and talking. And I think... Um, yeah, I mean, for us, it was a success because, uh, as you'll know, we're repeating it this summer in locations all around Europe. We're going to do six of them in different cities. So uh, we, we, we hope it's a good model. Well, let's talk about the Odyssey project that you're going to start next month. So, yeah, yeah I suppose it's two things. It's one, uh, recreating these roots festivals 
and then, um, well, effectively, that's what we're doing. We're, we're traveling some members of our organization uh, from Turkey uh, to Brussels, the kind of symbolic heart of the European Union, and stopping off in, in places where there's big refugee communities uh, and recreating these roots festivals. And so we're doing it in partnership with locals, local organizations, local community groups, because really we don't know the context in each place. We want it to be led by, by people who live there and work there. But we just want to facilitate you know, just saying, look, we've done this a bit in whatever way we can help, we will. Um, so we're stopping off and doing all of that. And that whole experience is going to be filmed and made into a uh, feature length documentary. So in parallel, we also want to film uh, what the situation is on the ground in each place that we're doing the festival. So talk to the NGOs, talk to the activists, talk to the politicians and say what's happening here. So we hope by the end, we can provide something that's an overview of the situation as is. That's fantastic. We really do need engagement between the refugee communities and the local communities, because if you look at the current discourse, we talk about refugees en masse and as this amethyst group, and that's very frightening because when you designate people simply as a group, you can dehumanize them and it leads to fear. And of course, it's correlated with the rise of right-wing parties in Europe, particularly in the context of economic strife. For instance, let's look at Greece and Serbia. There's a huge brain drain in Greece and Serbia. And these countries have massive economic problems. And when you have people coming and wanting to go to Germany, people might say, well, so do I. <laughs> you know, yeah. I also want a better future for my family. And this fuels fear and animosity and lends itself to political manipulation. I think the only way that we're going to pass these barriers is by actually putting people together. So it's fantastic that, uh, that you're doing that. So let's talk a little bit about some of the people that you've met through your work. Yeah, it's a diversity of people. Well, as I say, primarily from from the Middle East and Central Asia is, is where people are coming through now, uh, which is interesting, obviously, because the refugee crisis as a whole, or rather within Europe, there are kind of three main routes into Europe. There's the Eastern one, so the Balkan one, there's a Mediterranean one from Italy to uh, from North Africa to Italy, and then the Western one to up to Spain. And it's actually the, the middle one to from North Africa to Italy, which is the largest now. There are more people going from Libya into the Italian islands than are coming through the Balkan route. So uh, we work with a demographic that often people, when I speak to my friends or family back home, this is not who they necessarily consider as refugees. You know, people don't even, they're not considering that Afghanistan is still at war or it's an unsafe country. Um, but, um, but yeah, we've met some really interesting people. Um, some people full of strength and some people full of difficult stories. Uh, I was speaking to my colleague actually just before um, we got on the phone and uh, we were we were talking about this, about some of the people we met. And she mentioned uh, a family who actually she went to go see recently in Germany who are from Afghanistan. And we met them uh, here in the parks in Belgrade last, I think it must have been August or so. And they had four children under the age of nine, uh, the mother and father. And uh, for various reasons were unsafe in Afghanistan and had to travel. And the mother was pregnant when she when we met her here um, quite heavily. I think she must have been already seven months pregnant, probably. And we met them when they were sleeping in the park, you know, really just blankets on the floor. And we were going around doing our rounds and giving out food and, uh, and clothing items. And, uh, you know, we worked really closely with them, as we have done with, with many families, for the duration of their stay, which for them turned out to be a good six months or so. And so uh, my colleague uh, worked quite diligently at helping get them into some, some of our educational classes and also doing 
organizing some private tutoring for them because the children had never been to school. You know, they'd been on the road for at least six months, if not a little bit longer. Um, and then also uh, helping to, to get them access to services which are not always evident, uh, you know, without the appropriate translation or the appropriate paperwork or the appropriate knowledge. You know, the mother who, who needed obviously constant medical uh, advice wasn't, wasn't, didn't quite know how to get to the doctor or didn't have somebody who could help her do X, Y, Z. But um, so, uh, so that, that was uh, uh, quite difficult initially, but ended up very sweetly. She uh, gave birth here in Serbia, asked my colleague to name uh, the baby, which is very sweet because my colleague uh, a long time ago was born herself in a refugee camp in Denmark. She fled from Yugoslavia. And so there was very interesting parallels between her story and the family we were working with. And uh, yeah, we worked with them for the rest of their time here. And they've now gone through to Germany. And indeed, my colleague was there a few, uh, about a month ago to, to make sure they're settling in, see their asylum process. Um, so that's one, one story that we've seen the whole way through. But sadly, they're kind of an exception for us because of what we do, either humanitarian aid or education. We're only with people in their time in Serbia. And then eventually, you know, uh, one day to the next, they will be successful with a smuggler. They'll leave. And, uh, you know, if we have them on Facebook or whatever, we might hear about their journey. But for a lot of people, we don't know. And after that, they're, they're gone and we don't hear the, hear the news. So let's talk a bit about the smugglers and uh, the massive amounts of money that they're procuring from human misery. It's still prevalent. I mean, it's it's now uh, the only option, really. As I say, if you uh, so imagine you've just entered into Serbia, you've walked through either the jungle in Macedonia or Bulgaria, which are the, the bordering countries. Uh, okay, you get here, and what do you have to do? You have to first uh, signal your intent to seek asylum in the country, and that gives you paperwork, which means that you can stay here legally. And then from there, your options are pretty small. Either you actually go through that whole process and you apply for asylum here in Serbia which can take some time. And as with the numbers you said, uh, it's it's very, very small numbers which are actually getting asylum here, if people even go through with that process. Or they try and get themselves on this infamous list into Hungary, which is the only way they can move forward. Or if they're lucky, they might find themselves in one of the very rare resettlement programs to a third country, if they have family who are trying to get them united there. Uh, or uh, eventually they... I think it would be fair to say lose hope or lose money and opt for voluntary resettlement. Uh, and so one of the organizations here will facilitate sending them back to their home country. Uh, so those are those are all of the kind of legal ways you can go, which very few people are taking any of them. Or you try and continue for illegal means, which means getting a smuggler. And that is uh, a thriving business uh, because it's uh, it has a monopoly really on people's hope. And it's, as you say, it's a very lucrative business. Um, people can spend uh, huge amounts of money. Um, obviously, uh, there's, there's large levels of extortion or kidnapping. Um, Serbia is not one of the most notable countries for this. Our neighbors are, are reputedly um, more known for it. Bulgaria in particular has one of the highest instances of, of kidnapping by smugglers. So that will mean that you've paid for your journey. And often people pay from their home country to their intended destination. So you'll pay, uh, you know, several thousand US dollars from Afghanistan to, say, Germany. Uh, but then you get to each place you go to, uh, you have a different smuggler. So you have a different connection. You'll hand in the telephone number for each place you go. And they'll say, right, when you get into this next country, you call this person X, Y, and Z. Um, 
But then, uh, yeah, you'll find that a lot of people are kidnapped. And I said, okay, well, if you want to leave here, you need to pay us more money or, you know, you need to call home and get X, Y, or Z. So it's, um, it's very desperate. It's very dangerous. Um, it's not very well policed, I would say, obviously, in a lot of these countries. So, um, yeah, it can lead to some very dire circumstances. And it is, yeah, I mean, it is widespread. It's just empirically for me. I would struggle to say I've spoken to somebody uh, in the past year of being here who hasn't been kidnapped, extorted, or you know abused in some way, shape, or form by a smuggler. Oh, another thing that we're seeing and that smugglers are taking advantage of is the fact that we have large numbers of unaccompanied children. Yeah, it, it's a really pertinent issue and quite a difficult issue. Um, you know, just in our very small way and what we were trying to do, uh, we were, when we were doing food distribution, for example, which we've since stopped, um, we were trying to separate demographics. So you do men, you do families, and we were trying to do unaccompanied minors. But indeed, it's very hard to uh, distinguish because nobody has paperwork. And if they will, they won't show it to you uh, about what their actual age is. So a lot of it is guesswork. And then um, people will obviously say their ages are slightly different, depending on what facilities they're, they're trying to access, uh, which I think is, is understandable. Um, but that, and not only that, makes the government's position very difficult. And I would say that by and large, uh, services targeted towards unaccompanied minors are really lacking. Uh, you know, they're not given uh, dedicated centres. Um, if they are allocated social workers, um, it's often for big groupings of people and it's perhaps not necessarily enough or there may not be enough translators between the social workers and then the unaccompanied minors. Um, that said, I think Serbia uh, is is uh, recognising that that's, uh, it's a big issue and um, they are, they're working very closely with the Centre for Social Work here with social work institutions and with NGOs who, who work with, uh, with children and minors to make sure that uh, they're getting some sort of access that's, that's relevant to their needs. But yeah, you look at some of the surrounding countries, I don't mean to pick on sides, I don't mean to criticise unfairly, but Bulgaria, just I was doing some reading this morning, has makes no differentiation between ages. So in the centres, there's absolutely no differentiation if you're an unaccompanied minor, a child or a family. And indeed, there's numerous reports of when the police intercept people having entered into the country illegally, they will put you into a detention centre. Um, and what they uh, supposedly have, have been doing is attaching unaccompanied minors to um, adults because that makes their process of relocating them to camps much easier because they can say, oh, this is a family. So they're fabricating relations between people. Um, I'm not saying that's widespread, but it's, it's one of the many problems that unaccompanied minors can face. This situation, unfortunately, also appears to lend itself to abuse and sexual abuse in particular. A large number of refugee children appear to have been sexually abused. Doctors throughout Greece and France have inspected thousands of children that have sexually transmitted diseases. It seems that children are being abused both within the refugee communities as well as by locals. There's an infamous park in Athens that has this um, pernicious trade, and I suppose it's the same throughout Europe. Uh, what is the situation in Serbia and are the police being active to prevent this exploitation? Yeah, that is something that we've seen in Serbia by, as you say, both locals and uh, the refugee communities themselves. And uh, it can it can take many forms and can happen yeah, in many different ways. But um, 
sexual exploitation is quite big. I think in Serbia there was a time that, particularly when people were sleeping rough in the city centre, which, sorry if I didn't make clear, is, is not happening anymore now. People have by and large resettled into camps. But there was a, a, a really large um, uh, thing going on about locals, um, yeah, sexually exploiting uh, unaccompanied minors in particular. Uh, and a lot of it was was financial transactions because, as I say, if people have been here for a long time uh, and they'd run out of money, people were resorting to all sorts of methods uh, from which to, uh, to to move forwards. And I think that was one that was really being exploited. Have you perceived any tensions within the refugee communities? And if so, is the Serbian government adequately addressing this issue to, say, diffuse any incendiary situation and prevent any tension or any discrimination and abuse that there may be within the various refugee communities? I wouldn't say it's a widespread problem here. You've also got to bear in mind, you know, eight to 9,000 people is uh, relatively small compared to Greece, where it's 60, 65,000. So the numbers are a little bit less. Um, there are tensions within the communities. Uh, there are certain uh, demographics which do have problems amongst themselves. But I think in camp settings, by and large, that's not really being a big problem. I think it's relatively well policed. I think the authorities are quite conscious about who to put in the same bunk as who and you know how you can sort out the problem and unfortunately move people from one camp to another if there are particular uh, tensions between groups. So um, so it, it, it does happen, but I think it's uh, the government is, is aware of it and are trying to trying to address it. So you mentioned before that the vast majority of refugees are housed in government centres now, but a large number of refugees were living in very unsanitary, toxic conditions in abandoned buildings in Belgrade, and they were surviving through a brutal winter where temperatures dropped to minus 15 degrees Celsius or um, 5 degrees Fahrenheit. Now, was this occurring because there weren't enough government shelters or were people deliberately avoiding government registration because of a perception that Serbia would adhere to the Dublin rule that refugees have to apply for asylum in the first country of entry? Was the government being disingenuous when it forcibly evicted people from these places under the guise of protecting them as well as the local population from disease and moving them to government shelters? What has been your organization's relationship with the government throughout this? For I understand throughout this whole process, it seems the government prohibited organizations from helping people that went in government shelters. Yeah, I think um, you're definitely right to point that the uh, either the lack of information or the lack of understanding uh, uh, around the Dublin treaties was a really big fear for people, and I would say a, a big uh, catalyst for why uh, people were choosing non-official shelters over official shelters or were refusing to go to the government camps. Um, obviously, Serbia is not part of the European Union, so in theory is not subject to the to the Dublin treaties, but because of their talks about exceeding the, the European Union, uh, I think it's not an unrealistic uh, expectation that there would be bilateral agreements that would mean they have to accept more people back here. Um, in order for their talks to continue. But, um, in, yeah, in terms of the numbers uh, in in the shelters and why people were and weren't going, so uh, let's say over winter, as you mentioned, when it was minus 15, minus 20 degrees, there was, a, there was still people sleeping rough in the city centre, probably about 1,500. Uh, at that time, um, the consensus amongst NGOs is that there were not enough places in the government-run camps for the amount of refugees who were in the country. Um, 
and that there was a lack of about one to one and a half thousand spaces, that there was about uh, space for about 7,000 in government camps, and there was about eight and eight and a half thousand uh, refugees in the whole country. So one reason that people weren't going is, is undoubtedly that there was not enough space. The second is, as you mentioned, people were very afraid to go to the government camps and to get their fingerprints taken and to get registered because they thought that could eventually lead to them being uh, being sent back. Um, so, um, yeah, I think I think there's a, a couple of different reasons about why people weren't going. Uh, in terms of our relationship with the government and uh, uh, how they've been for our activities and other, other uh, NGO groups, um, I would say it depends on the on the political atmosphere and what the line is at that particular point. Um, a quite difficult moment uh, for everybody was last October, when there were still huge populations sleeping in the city centre, and the government issued an open letter um, that uh, asked that all organisations cease and desist from providing humanitarian assistance outside of government-run camps. Uh, under the explanation that we were providing a pull factor for people to leave the government camps and to come to the city centre and to basically ignore uh, government facilities. Uh, the, the difficulty is that that letter was not binding by law. It was just a very strongly worded recommendation. So it kind of split the NGO community and, and, and activists and all sorts between people who were willing to take the risk and between people who were reading between the lines and saying, this is a, this is a warning sign that we should stop doing things. So, um, yeah, our relationship with the government fluctuates, I think, is probably the best way to describe it. <laughs> so currently, when you're focusing on education in government centres, following a very serpentine path here, but moving back to the classes, and you said not only English classes, but there are mathematics and IT and so forth. In what language are you conducting these classes? So, sorry, one point of clarification. Our, we've opened up a, a dedicated learning centre, which is outside of the camps. And so it's somewhere that people actually have to come to. They get on the bus and they, they come down to our centre, uh, partly for practical reasons, partly for um, uh, it's, it's quite difficult to get access into the camps to do long-term programmes. And uh, as I think I started alluding to, the government is, I think, uh, still behind on letting groups uh come into the camps and and uh, carry out basically education activities. So we and a lot of other groups are having to do it outside. Um, in terms of language, yeah, it's, it's done in English. Um, it's done using a lot of uh, pictures, a lot of gesticulations, uh, a lot of expressions, maybe some basic theatrical skills. Um, but we also have some cultural mediators and some translators uh, from the refugee community who who work with us. So if there are ever emergencies or something that really needs to be explained uh, more concisely, we obviously are materially translated. So when they arrive, they can read things um, in, in Urdu or Pashto or, or whichever language suits them. So, um, yeah, I think people can understand by and large uh, the classes that we're trying to give them. But also they're very flexible. You know, it's one of the big difficulties is that we experimented a little bit with curriculums, either an eight-week or a 12-week curriculum, which you can start doing with people. But uh, you know, as we're saying, this is a transit country and everybody's number one goal is to get the hell out. So you can start doing a class with somebody and say, oh, you'll have an exam on Friday, but a smuggler gets them through on Thursday and they move forward. So really, we try and be quite flexible and just say, like, look, you're here to learn if from one day to the next, we have to change the curriculum slightly or you can't come because you're taking care of somebody or your relative comes in in your place. It's it's um, 
it's it's really adaptable in terms of what we're trying to teach people. So how do people access your center? Because they have to take a bus to come to your center, right? So they have to firstly know about it and then they have to be able to leave the government camps and get on a bus and be transported there and so forth. How does this work? So the the, the camps uh, are all um, reception centers as opposed to detention centers in Serbia, excuse me. Uh, Although uh, some of them, one notably in the south, has very strict opening hours, so is, is has very limited access, but the rest of them, uh, people can leave and go. I think they have a curfew at 10 p.m., but apart from that, they're free to move. Um, uh, they can ride public transportation for free. Um, and uh, so, yeah, so the main thing we do in terms of engagement is we speak uh, with both uh, our colleagues from the refugee community who work with us, and they do outreach in the camps themselves. We work with the camp authorities um, and also uh, with social workers who are working very closely in the camp. And so we tell them about our activities and then they can advertise them either targeted to people who they think would be, uh, you know, really, really beneficial. Um, or they just advertise them by and large. We put posters, we put materials there. And then the first few times we can bring people to and from the camps, as I say, our cultural mediators will show people how to get there. And uh, yeah, we hope, I mean, it's, we, we are oversubscribed. We're quite a, you know, it's a relatively small operation and we have more people with the will to do it than uh, anything else so i hope that's indicative that the the um the travel and stuff isn't isn't too much for them to do well it's fantastic that you're doing this and that they're able to participate <laughs> it's um wonderful i want to now move on to the european situation in general and the paradigm of discourse on the issue while it's true that unprecedented levels of refugees are coming to europe and by accidents of geography, Italy and Greece, the Balkans through Greece have been the entry points and they probably are the least able within Europe to accept the influx of people because they have strange resources. And, it, and it's certainly a continuing crisis. It's being framed as the world's worst and you may be forgiven to think principal refugee crisis. And yet, really, 60% of the world's displaced persons are not in Europe at all. They're in Turkey, they're in Lebanon, Jordan, Kenya, Uganda, Ethiopia, Iran, Pakistan, Tanzania, Shad. And those are the countries that have a huge proportion of refugees, much more than in Europe, and they are more ill-equipped to handle them. The people that have come to Europe from 2015, I think it's less than 1% of the total European population and can be completely resettled within Europe. And I wonder whether, you know, we're focusing on Europe because of the racial aspect, because we have people coming from Middle Eastern countries and Central Asian countries and North Africa. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't disagree. I think it's, uh, you look at how much money is being spent alone, you know, and this is a political issue for many of these countries. And I mean that in the sense that uh, it's, it's something on which people are winning elections and something on which people are providing, you know, uh, uh, making platforms to discuss this and, uh, and and really are gaining power and traction from from their local citizens from it. But, uh, yeah, you know, Bulgaria has spent, I think, 5 million euros, I think is right, on their fence with Turkey. Uh, Hungary, obviously, has built their fence. They had a referendum last year, which cost them, I'd be paraphrasing the numbers, but it's in the hundreds of thousands, if not millions, uh, to do the referendum. And the referendum was a question about resettling, I think it was it was 3,000 refugees over the course of several years. Um, but by and large, yeah, you look at all of the all of the pattern and people are spending a huge amount of money uh, in fortifying Fortress Europe or in uh, perpetuating discourses which are um, 
divisive, definitely. And uh, I don't have an explanation for it is the answer. I mean, you look at the rise of the right-wing parties everywhere from Golden Dawn in Greece to Gert Wilders in the Netherlands to, to the unfortunate situation in the UK or France, which arguably had a near miss. And um, yeah, if it's uh, nationalism is on the rise, uh, right-wing politics are on the rise. And I think um, a lot of groups are using the, the migration crisis to, uh, you know, really to further their own further their own political ambitions and uh, and sadly i think that they're, they're having some they're having some success right they're using the refugee communities as political fodder because there's economic turmoil and they're taking advantage of it we need to change our mindset as well as our laws on refugees because unfortunately it appears that the numbers of displaced persons are only going to increase while some countries are currently not following the law, the law itself needs to develop to adjust to change circumstance. When we think of refugees legally, we think of people that are fleeing persecution. But by and large, people are not specific groups fleeing persecution. It's climate change, it's conflict, it's failed states. They're fleeing. I believe now we have 60 million people that are displaced. I mean, it's only going to get worse. I mean, Bangladesh, for instance, is rapidly receding and losing its territory to increase sea levels, and other countries will too. And that is not something that we've covered adequately under current international law, which may take a long time to develop. We need to change our mindset about the issue, and that's why engagement and integration are so instrumental. We can achieve a lot on the local level, and in turn, this can help mould a new international model. I think that unless we engage with refugee communities, like your organisation is helping to do right now, to dispel such fear of the other in the future, we're just going to have uh, more conflict. Yeah, I, I mean, I agree totally. Uh, but it's, it's uh, you know, that challenges people's uh, uh, identity and their, and their preconceptions of what it means to be whatever, what, however they're identifying, if it's European, if it's a nation, if it's a religion or whatever. And I think those are really important things to do. I think those need to be challenged. But Europe is going to... Uh, look different and sound different, and that's inevitable. You know, migration will not and cannot stop uh, migration, both from refugees and 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 from economic migrants, who are a huge portion, I think, of of uh, well, not displaced people, but of the numbers who are coming. Um, so yeah, I think it's, but that's you know, we really need Europeans to to face up to that reality, and as you say, to harness the potential of people who want to come, who want to work, who want to contribute to society, who want to uh, you know form multicultural multiracial, uh, thriving, thriving nations. But, uh, but people aren't currently looking at it that way. Yeah, it, it's unfortunate. And I think they're not because of the fear that they have, the economic instability. But that is why personal engagement is so instructive because it dismantles the fear mongering. And I think something we're forgetting is that Europe may sound and look different, but it would still be European, for the European identity has changed over time and even within European countries. What is more French than the croissant and yet it's Austrian in origin? Where would Europeans be without the Ottomans bringing coffee? The positive element is not just merely an adding to the menu, but to the whole culture as a whole. And when immigrant communities, not merely refugees, are welcomed, they bring vitality. We develop through cross-cultural integration for it's a more holistic way of looking at things. 
And I would like to focus now on examples of community engagement that you've witnessed uh, in the Balkans, including in Greece, for instance, the Karamales refugee camp that you uh, have written about on your website with the Odyssey Project, where the engagement between the local and refugee communities has fostered a real relationship between them and aided them both. Yeah. Um, uh, not to want to sound too, too pessimistic, but I, I think it's 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 still lacking, and in Serbia in particular, uh, you know, Greece is obviously the, the numbers are bigger, and people have been there for longer, and so I think they've they're starting some initiatives, um, some you know, even yeah, if it's camps where refugees are allowed a little bit more autonomy. I mean, as I say to you in Serbia, kind of like one of our versions of giving refugees autonomy is over this list system into Hungary, which I think is probably not the best way to give people control over their own lives. Um, but in Greece, yeah, there's some really interesting initiatives uh, in the rest of the Balkans as well. Um, but but Serbia, unfortunately, I think have have, have have got a lot to go. You look at where the camps are uh, throughout the country, and they are pretty much all are along the borders, and they I think can almost sadly be divided into uh, places which are in the middle of nowhere or uh, they are in communities which are hostile to them so um, you know even not very far from Belgrade to the north well okay not very far from here in Sheed for example on the Croatian border there was a camp that had to close down basically from pressure from the locals uh, in Obranovac which is just outside of the city centre there was um, a huge uproar after uh, an alleged crime perpetuated by a refugee, which was absolute nonsense. A, a, a woman uh, had basically thought that uh, a group of refugees who were moving off of the pavement to let her pass were trying to steal her bag, or I had allegations that they were trying to steal her crib with her baby in, which I think is probably a stretch too far. But, uh, you know, it faces huge backlash from the local community. Uh, same up in Subotica uh, on the Hungarian border, where a refugee was alleged to have broken into somebody's house. Um, uh, and so there was a huge backlash against the refugee camp there. So, yeah, sadly, in terms of like engagement between the locals and the refugee populations, by and large, whom are in camps here, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's not happening that much. One place which it is happening slowly but I think there are some improvements in, is in what we're trying to do in education, but also in formalised education in terms of uh, the, the government is now enabling some children from the camps to go to local schools um, and to attend classes with local Serbian children, which I think is great. Obviously, it gives them a sense of normality. Uh, it gives them something to do with their time. They can, you know, they can integrate with local children, learn the language. Uh, do something with, with 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 their time, which I think is great. But even that is still very small. I think the numbers currently is about 100, 102 children of a population of 8,000, not only children, but also adults in the whole country. And even then, I think these are schools which I hope have good intentions, but are perhaps lacking again translators or, or cultural mediators or the teachers haven't been trained how to work with uh, children coming from trauma or, uh, you know, from from situations that they're coming from. So, um, yeah, that's my rant over. But I think community engagement is 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 still lacking. Hmm. Well, hopefully it will just progress and develop and Serbia seems to be making small steps in the right direction. It is. I think so. Thank you very much for your time here today, Felix, for discussing these pertinent issues 
and the unfortunate situation that still remains with respect to the refugee communities in Serbia and throughout Europe, and for informing our audience about the wonderful, commendable work that your organization continues to do. Best of luck with the Odyssey project that you are starting next month. I wish it success because we really do need more community engagement. It's through engagement on a personal level that we're going to cast down these barriers that are preventing us from getting together and integrating. Thank you. Thank you so much for the kind words. And uh, yeah, it's been really interesting and stimulating to talk. So thank you so much for having me on. you have found this podcast insightful and will join us next time as we explore more issues affecting our environment and human rights at home and around the world. For more materials on this issue, please go to our website, thegravity.fm.